You are listening to the Noisy Narratives podcast, a podcast produced by the Women of First Ministries at Frisco First Baptist Church in Frisco, Texas. Here at Noisy Narratives, we like to cut through the noise of our stories and get to the heart of what really matters. We hope you are blessed by what we share. Thank you so much for listening. Isn't it amazing? Hello, everyone. Welcome to Noisy Narratives. This is Debbie, and I'm here along with Christy. How are you today, Christy? I'm fabulous. That was... How are you today, Christy? <laughs> you need Christy to is we, not peppy I... today. <laughs> well, we've been sitting here for the last 20 minutes talking about other things, and then you're like, how are you today, Christy? And I'm like, I'm good. I did my change. I oh, know, you I did. did my, you did. That's what it was. To my noisy narrative face. Uh-huh. You, yeah, that's a good way to put it. From my it always not noisy me, narrative yeah. face. Catches me off guard. It does. Christy uh-huh. always looks at me funny. It makes me go, oh, we're supposed to be more peppy Professional? or something. <laughs> the, the noisy narrative is nothing professional about this podcast. Oh it's my just fun loving. So it is fun loving and fun it's loving. people caring. Absolutely. Yes. All the above. Yeah. We do not and pride Christy ourselves. Christy and I love each other, so we know yeah. each other very well. Yeah. And we do so not we pride can... ourselves on professionalism. Well, that's true. I often think, do you care more about yourself or what you do? Do I personally care more about myself? No, not you oh. really in general, but like there's sometimes that I have to remind myself, like, I don't care what people think or I don't care what, okay, let's see if I can get this. Like, this is really tired, Christy, trying to process. It is tired, Christy, today. <laughs> um, a minute ago, someone goes, oh, I like your messy bun. I said, the messy bun, it's, this is how I feel on the inside is how I look on the outside today. Oh, interesting. <laughs> okay, but what's this saying? Don't take yourself too seriously. Yes. That idea of, do you take yourself seriously or do you take your job seriously? Oh, oh, yeah. You know what? This is a really cool question because... I've always struggled with not having, finding my identity in what I do in my job. Bingo. So they have been very wrapped up for me. Mm-hmm. So when it's my job, I do take myself very seriously. So Even. should you take yourself less seriously? Yes, is correct. What what and that's gotten do. easier over time because I've, I've become more comfortable. Um, and I would just say I'm, I'm a, when it came to that, I was, as my mom said, they raised me in responsibility. Mm-hmm. I wasn't like, I did was- sports for fun, but I wasn't like all as all into sports as like my siblings because I was the responsible one who helped mm-hmm. take care of things mm-hmm. and take care of kids. And like, Maybe. you're the oldest 100%. too. And so um, I really think that kind of is pervasive in myself in general. Mm-hmm. But then especially when I started being a teacher and things I loved and cared about so much, if I wasn't good at that, if there's something I did wrong, it was hard for me to admit it. Mm. It was hard for me to laugh mm-hmm. about it. It was hard for me to be okay with it. Oh. And so, um, and I wanted to get along with all the other teachers. I wanted us to work together. I wanted to care for the kids. I wanted to be really good at it. I wanted parents to look at me and say, she's amazing. Oh yeah. Yes. <laughs> you know, I mm-hmm. mean, you just, you, you look that's that. what you wanted and yeah. that affirmation. And so it took me um, just maturity and growth to not take that as seriously. Also, Hurt and pain, I'm sure, came along with that. Well, and yeah, and in the sense of stuff I needed to learn is how you're not going to please everybody and trying to do that. It's just as bad. Mm -hmm. And um, so when you say, yeah, you're right. I mean, separating those two is easier for some than others, right? Sometimes. Um, 
So yeah, good question. What made you think of that? I don't know. I don't know why, but it comes up in my mind a lot because I don't want to be known as taking myself too seriously ever. So you feel like you, you do want to work on the end where you can laugh at yourself and oh. be, and find humor. Yes. And, stuff, for and sure. I don't want yeah. anybody to think like, oh, she's, she takes herself like she thinks she's all that. Or here's an example. Yesterday we had a volleyball tournament. This is a great example. Yeah. And we played the number one seed and the coach was young and she thought she was all that. And it was oh. hilarious to watch. Cause I was like, I get it. Like you are, you're the number, your team is the best team in this division. This is amazing. But then I thought, you know what? You have to be broken from that. At some point you realize that one of these girls are going to fail you. You think she's amazing. You think she can do that. And she's going to, and then you're going to want to lose your whatever on her because she's not showing up for the game and it's going to make you look bad and mm. coaching. It's not about that, right? You're like, you're there to help the girls succeed and do what they can do with the skills they're given at that time. Interesting. Meaning some skills don't show up that day. Yeah. For whatever reason. For sure. <laughs> Cause they're for girls. sure. But I watched her yesterday they're and then, human. yeah, and we beat them one game. So we played three games. We beat them one of the three and she did. She got ticked off because some little puny, not my, my team's puny, but we're just not well known. Um, my team's amazing. I love my girls. They did great by the way. But then we saw them the next day and they got beat like 21 or 25 to 12. Mm. And the, even my girls were like, Oh, she's getting beat. She's getting beat. They could have cared less the score. They were watching the coach cause she took herself so seriously that you instantly wanted to root against her. And I just thought, wow. yeah, that's how I am. I'm totally, I don't want to be, I don't ever want to be taken too seriously. Yeah. I want to be able to be like, yeah. I'm well, human. and I think there is a difference between being taken so seriously and thinking, you it's your job like I I'm trying to explain this well it's but like hard. when your team yeah there's like a performance issue there when you're a teacher like I was there's a performance issue on standardized tests right mm -hmm. like you want your kids to do well on tests because that reflects well on your class it reflects on well on you as a teacher mm -hmm. everything else I do think that taking back from that and saying okay how do I take these skills like you're saying so I'm building up these skills that's mm -hmm. good for the kid, the kid good for the individual mm -hmm. good for the person the people I'm with and making that matter more than just the end result right. is the only way you get away from not being that yeah like if you're constantly I'm not looking at the individual girls I'm mm -hmm. looking at my team has to look like this mm -hmm. and if that's all I want then all these other girls guess what they're collateral damage right I mean they're just mm -hmm. in my way mm -hmm. if you're not doing everything you're supposed to do. Yeah. And I think for work, people who act like that in the workplace or coaching oh. teams or whatever. I've had bosses that way. Yes. Though, or I people have people that I've worked with that I'm like, I, have I don't, I, I, no, I'm yeah. sorry. You're poop you smells get run bad over. too. Yeah. And you get run over by them, right? <laughs> yes. yes. Yeah. I and just it hurts. don't care. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. And now you learn as I think as you get older, or the more you get run over by them or the more you deal with them that you're like, I'm just going to keep my distance from them. Yeah. I don't want to wish them harm, but bless their heart. It's coming your way if you can't do, if you can't figure that out. And I think people, as you get older, you start learning how to have healthy boundaries, right? You start learning mm -hmm. how to do that better. And also, hopefully you've worked on yourself enough to go, this is where I'm doing that too. And I need to not. So our word of the day, we're doing a word of the day today. And it's short shrift. And short shrift is used to mean little or no attention or consideration given to something. Shrift, spell that part. S H R I F T. Short. Oh, shrift. Shrift. Yeah. Little or no attention to. And so, what's your question to go along with that? So, my question is what is it that we give short shrift to that maybe we should not? 
My initial response is this a, word, this yes. conversation, <laughs> this portion of the noisy narrative. We're giving, just, we're giving too much attention to this, to, is what you're right. saying. You're saying, let's short shrift this yep. short shrift conversation. Have you heard of this word before? No. Have you never. read this word before? Never. Seen this word? Never. Isn't it weird how many words are out there that you've never seen? Very heard? much. Especially since you're a reader. Yeah. I've, I've never seen, never seen that word. Now, short, obviously, but shrift and short together, never. Never. <laughs> it's funny. You had to be like, oh, I've seen the word short. I've seen Thanks, it short. Just in case. I've seen that. Just in case you didn't know. <laughs> That's good. But I just, yeah, that was the word of the day yesterday from Miriam Webster. Mm-hmm. Their word of the day on January 22nd, 2023 was short shrift. Yeah, I, I, again, I am short shrift with this conversation about this word. Because would you ever use that? No. What I find it interesting is why wouldn't you say, hey, I'm not really going to give any con- attention to that. Or I'm not going to consider that. But what what's that saying by Mark Twain that said, why use a $5 word when you can use a 50 cents, is, whatever. Is that but, what it is? Yeah. So my question was, what is it about your mental health or about you personally that you think you give short shrift to? I don't know. That's a lot of thinking. What do you do? What would you say? Your answer is You have to me. answer. Okay. As long I'll as you answer, answer after but me. You do help me work through things okay. on where you you're have going. to answer too. So I would say... What I always gave short shrift to was... Um, to like in the past or currently? Well, and I'm still You're working on not oh, doing that, right? Okay. And so I would say when I get my feelings hurt, for example, I would not address oh. why that is so. I would simply avoid the issue. I was an avoider, avoider when it came to that kind of stuff. Yes. So I would have a hard time addressing things with Jamie, for example, my husband, because... It was easier to short shrift that than mm-hmm. to actually engage in the conversation. So I was an avoider. Um, I'm not always. It depends on the people. But when it comes to my emotional well-being, mm-hmm. I do tend to ignore certain those things. certain feelings because it's easier. And I would all I would like just really not even consider them. I could put them in a box. I was like a guy in that way. I'm totally. I could I'm totally mine in, a, in a box right now. Yeah. That I don't have any idea where the the knife is to cut them open right now. Yeah. See. So what is it then? You short shrift. What about what is emotions. it you're doing that for? Probably emotions. In general, all of them. No, I'm good at some of them. I don't know. I kind of disregard. The, I mean, that's the short, little, or no attention to. Yeah, probably emotions. I'll acknowledge some emotions. But not all, I mean, there's plenty that I'm like, that's stupid. Move past that. Yeah, I'll probably do that too. There's something else though that I give little or no attention to. Little or no attention to. What do you tend to disregard? Resting. Oh. Sitting on the couch. I would say that's exactly you. Yeah. I would say you're right. I did it yesterday when we got home. I was like, I'm putting, I took a shower, I took a nap. I took a shower and then I was like, I'm sitting here. And then I sat there and Brinley was there. Zoe was there. Ginger, we were all on the couch because the boys were golfing. And I was like, oh my gosh, my brain is already like, come on, go do this. And I was like, no, just sit on the dang couch. Like mm. sit here. And I had to tell and then about 20 minutes into it, I could. We need to rest. But um, anyway. But you got to be able to rest without guilt. For sure. And so I think that takes the 20 or 30 minutes to settle in. Before you feel not guilty. Yes. Ah, that's good to know about yourself. Well, we have a fun interview um, with a counselor, um, that Kara, that's coming on next. And we're going to talk about two negative thinking strategies. We're not going to get into that now because you're going to hear that in the interview. But we hope it'll be helpful. We're going to have more of these we're going to drop along the way um, about negative thinking strategies and turning those around on their head and letting the Lord 
work in your mind and your heart instead of the negative things that we send to, you know, think. Using the word short shift when you shrift. have shrift when you have negative thinking. There you go. Little or no attention. Short to it. shrift your negative, negative thoughts. thoughts. Yeah, yeah. That's good. Short, short shrift, shrift the, the negative, negative thoughts. thoughts. Nice. Good job, Debbie. We said the same time. <laughs> We're killing it over here. Hey, we Monday are. morning. We made it through. We made it through. All right, y'all. Um, that's it. But here's the interview. Okay, so we have our special guest today, and um, Christy's going to introduce her. She's right? a Baylor grad. Baylor University graduated oh, in 1999 we'll forgive her. <laughs> we'll forgive her. with a bachelor's of science in education degree in health and wellness. Um, and she also graduated from Colorado Christian in 2001 with her master's of arts degree in counseling. She's a licensed professional counselor in addiction and trauma. And what I just said, do you, it, do you like to be known as a licensed counselor with addiction and trauma or with, uh, you said trauma and then you said, well, and addiction too, because mm-hmm. those go hand in hand. Right. So yeah. welcome, Kara McLeod. Thank you. Thank you. Even though I wanted good to, to call be you here. a different way on your spelling of your last name. Yeah. <laughs> and you're pretty new. We put you under the into the fire pit here pretty fast because you've only been at Frisco First now for a few months. A few months. And we've been decided... to Bible study. There and this go. is how I discovered um, she was a counselor. We were talking one time and she was like, I'm a counselor. And I was like, oh, 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 oh. that's it's right. So <laughs> Would you come on the podcast? And she was like, absolutely. So you're very gracious and generous with your time. So thank, you. thank you. Here yeah. we are. Yes. We love counselors on here because we all need a lot of counseling. So mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> we, and you've got, we well, like you've got two kids. You've got a sophomore at Wakeland and then an eighth grader at what middle school? Are you? At Cobb. You're at Cobb. Okay. And then you've moved into your own personal private counseling. Right. How long have you been doing that? So I've been doing that since the summer. So just a few months. Few months. But you've had nine years, you said, of driving back and forth to Dallas. Right. Yeah. So. so I was in a group, I was in an organization that treated primarily addiction. Mm. And so like yeah. a hospital type or like it was a... an outpatient. Okay. So I was the clinical director there right. and, um, we focused on addiction, but also everything that, you yep. know, comes for right. That's involved in that because addiction is typically, um, coming from something else, whether mm-hmm. it's depression, anxiety, um, you know, family systems issues. So really our goal was to let's take away that piece. Let's get to where we can focus on the root cause of whatever's going on. So, yeah, so nine years of that. And then now I get to um, have my own practice and that's been such a blessing. Oh, good. What's the biggest difference between the two? Like what, it, what is the, the difference between toll, working and the original? Tolls. Yeah, the she tollway. Tolls. <laughs> oh, you don't have to get on the tollway anymore. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> that's well, true. But <laughs> yeah, so for me, I mean, in a private practice, I'm not also I'm not doing the accountability piece. So um, there's not a program that I'm in charge. I'm responsible for managing other people. We're not, you know, doing the drug testing piece. Um, so I'm really only where I am you know, one of my criteria in my private practice is you need to be sober first, um, because that's where we can do our work. Um, you know, even right now I have a patient who isn't stable yet and wanting to do some trauma work. And so that's just a boundary I need to, is no, you need to be, you need to be sober first and stable in order to do this harder work. So then they need to actually go through a program you were in before. Yes. 
become stable before they can then go into the counseling piece that you offer. Yes. Which that makes sense because if you're not stable and you're bringing up old trauma, that right exasperates and makes things it's worse. Gonna, yeah. Destabilize you even further. Yeah. So it's numbing the pain too that you have to experience to go right. through to get to the root. Yes. Yes. Very, very, very insightful, Christy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. I've been there. I've been yes. to many counseling sessions. Uh-huh. I get it. So actually with trauma therapy, what we, you, we need to be able to access allowing whatever comes up in the body mm. and your nervous system, um, whatever thoughts and feelings come up, we need to be able to access that. So if you're numbing it with something else, whether it's alcohol, drugs, some kind of behavioral numbing, Sex. yes, That's any a big kind one right of now. process addiction, then yeah. yeah, then that's, we're not going to be able to really do the work. Mm-hmm. So Okay, Man. so we're going to do the work here. Yeah. A little bit, right? Because we are relatively through. stable. I mean, that's <laughs> arguable on many different days. According to you. <laughs> right. Which is we are the authority. We're already getting diagnosed by judgment. the counselor. <laughs> but we're going to talk about the 10 common negative thinking patterns. But we're not talking about the 10. But there are 10. Like if someone was like, what is it? What are they talking about? You could Google 10 common negative, negative thinking patterns. But we're only going to talk about two. So 10 common distorted thinking patterns. I like that. Correct. Which is a great way to think about it. It is. Because it is distorted. So let's talk about the first one. The should statement. I always remember, do you remember uh, we had a counselor come in and talk to re-engage and she said, should is like (laughs) on your thinking. Yeah. Insert bad word. Yeah. Right. And she said that. And I remember her saying it at church and she said the bad word and I was like, I know. (gasps) So, yeah. So actually, when you brought this up as a topic, that's the first thing that came to my mind is there's a saying, uh-huh. um, which, so this is, so all of these cognitive distortions are coming from cognitive behavioral therapy. And so David Burns was the one that kind of came with, here are the 10 major types of ways that our thinking gets distorted. Um, but then... Albert Ellis created rational emotive behavioral therapy, REBT, and he had this saying of don't should on yourself. Yes. Yeah. Don't should on yourself. And so so when I knew I was coming on here, I thought, no, that's probably not something I can say. (laughs) Oh, you can totally say it. On a podcast for my church. (laughs) Well, we just broke that rule. We just did. We did. (laughs) Don't should on yourself. Yes. I, that's a way to think about well, it. Well, and let's... It's let's, true, though. It is true, but it let's do true. the... Um, yeah. Let's define what we're talking about here real quick before we get much further in. Because of the 10, um, we're doing two today, and we'll hopefully drop other podcasts, but we'll do the rest of the eight, two at a time. But the first one we're going to talk about, because it is... I think it's particularly hard for people who live in their head a lot, right? Um, I feel like women do this a lot but maybe men do too mm-hmm. and I just they do it in different ways and they just do it quieter we kind of yeah. do it louder maybe That's a good way yeah. but here's what it it's the definition of should statements that are negative thinking patterns it's you have a clear idea about how things should or should not be when they don't turn out that way we blame ourselves or others for example I should have done it my way instead of listening to you it's your fault it didn't work out um it keeps us from moving forward and learning from things right is part of it and it just shames us mm-hmm. is kind of the the deal so um when you're like doing counseling how do you see should statements come out the most like where do you see it impact cl- people yeah so a lot of times the should is coming from guilt or shame and so it's digging into 
where is that coming from in you? Um, a lot of times it's this kind of deeper belief of there's something wrong with me. And so oftentimes it's digging into where did you first start to believe that? Where and how is that showing up for you? So the should can be, it can be implied a lot of times, but it's this sense of I'm not where I want to be. I'm not where I feel like I'm supposed to be in my life. And here's how that can play out, even in just, I should be better off than I am. I should be exercising, right? It can come out in seemingly more um, ways that we can accept of, you know, thinking that, okay, well, it's most people have those types of thoughts. Um, But really, when we dig down, there's a deeper sense of, you know, this, that I'm not who I'm, who I'm supposed to be. So what's so. the difference between, I think we would all say, okay, there is something wrong with all of us. Like we are all broken. Like we are all messed up, right? So what's wrong with saying you should have done that? Is that not conviction? So what's the difference between should and conviction? Because I mean, there is a difference, right? Mm-hmm. There is a big difference. So can you talk a little bit about the difference between those two things? Yeah, I think conviction is a sense of I'm called to something better. And there's a healthy guilt. You know, I think guilt can be a healthy emotion. We're called to something different or better. And so when we feel guilty of I didn't do what I'm called to do, then that can be motivation to do better. To change. And yeah, I think that kind of a way for us to look at it is, well, what do we need to turn that should into? It's maybe it's a regret, right? Instead of I should have done that fill in the blank. It's more I regret not showing up. I, you know, it's unfortunate that I didn't do the right thing. And here's what I will do. Here's next time, right? Having learned from my mistakes, because absolutely, we're all broken. Um, We're imperfect, we make mistakes. So what do we do with those mistakes? And instead of being mired in the shoulds, which can be a very lukewarm, you know, passive way to be thinking about it. It's thinking about it more as an action of here's what I'm called to. I like that. That was a good explanation. It was. And I liked how you used the word healthy guilt. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts? I'm going to go off a bit, but what are your thoughts on shame? Is that a healthy emotion? I have have deep thoughts on this one because we had it on a a card that we were supposed to use and it referenced kind of the eight basic emotions mm-hmm. and it had shame on the list. And I was like, I'm denying that. I don't, I don't think that is a, I don't like that as a believer as being a basic emotion. Yeah. Because when I lived in, yes, I, <laughs> there's the card. When I lived in, when I lived in shame, it was not a healthy place for me. So I don't like that. It's, I don't know. I struggled with that. Like, but I but like the word healthy. healthy guilt. I like oh. healthy guilt is fine. Cause she even said like healthy guilt drives you to do things, makes you do things where I don't, I don't know. I struggle with the word shame. And as a believer, like, I don't feel like I want to get women out of shame, mm-hmm. not me personally, but I want to help walk them through. Like you're living in shame. That's different than guilt. And my sister and I, and even another friend, like we argued at a, at a, at a basketball game. We were arguing over this. About shame? <laughs> because someone thinks shame is actually good. Yes. Like, that it's okay. They, to and finish. I said, no, but I, so then you just gave me a great word. You can have healthy guilt. I'm on board with healthy guilt. 
I'm not on board with shame. Yeah. So am I right? Am I wrong? What do I need to do? How do I need to work through this? Kara, I'm listening. Tell me I'm taking notes. Go. (laughs) This is a great conversation too, because I think shame is something we battle a lot of. Well, we totally do, but I think it's believers were given the Holy Spirit and the cross to not have to battle it, Mm -hmm. but we don't want to. You know what I mean? Like that's my struggle is like when I was living in shame from sin and I, and Satan wanted me to stay there for forever, but thankfully to Beth Moore's breaking free, I was able to break free and get rid of those chains. But I don't want that to be a basic emotion. I want that to be like a yucky emotion. Like you need, I don't want that to be on a list of a basic emotion. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'll stop talking. Sorry. <laughs> That's good. No, I totally agree with you. I think so. The difference between guilt and shame guilt is I did something wrong yeah. and I feel bad about it. Mm-hmm. Right. So the guilt is the feeling bad shame is I am wrong. There's something wrong with me. Mm. And that goes beyond just our kind of common sin. Like right. It's thoughts, not basic. Right? It's not basic. It's yeah. more of a sense of internally of internalizing that and feeling a sense of like, I am a failure. Mm-hmm. There's something inherently bad mm-hmm. and, and connecting and identifying with that in a way that keeps us stuck and keeps us broken. And mm-hmm. so I think our, yeah, we're called to move through what does healing look like? What mm-hmm. does, you know, taking ownership of my brokenness and where do I go with that? Mm-hmm. What is, how do I, you know, accept grace? Yes. Yeah. And then living in shame, I feel like live, makes me stay in the should statements. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Because shame and should, that's great alliteration. Yeah. Wow. Shame and should. But those should makes me stay in the shame or shame makes me stay in the should. Right. So you've got to get rid of the SH to kind of move on. Mm-hmm. I don't know that you can be someone who shoulds on yourself a lot yes. without being filled with shame. Absolutely. Yeah, that's good. I, I just don't. I feel it. So honestly, I guess that with the bit to Christy's point with the basic emotion of shame, that being, or it not being basic, if you feel yourself in shame a lot, do you go back to see, does that mean, would you tell someone if you're living in shame and you're feeling ashamed of a lot of things, do they need to go back and kind of look at these, this negative way of thinking and consider how much they're kind of doing the should statements to themselves? Yes, absolutely. So how would you suggest they do that? So oftentimes it's, Let's, let's look back. Let's look at your story. Where is this coming from, from your experiences? We are a product of our experiences. We're conditioned to certain ways that we see the world, that we are, see ourselves in the world. And so it's understanding where is this coming from? Um, where was this, where did this start? Did this start from a wound? Is this something you've been hurt? Is this from your family of origin, a way that you maybe learned about like you were taught to think about yourself or the world Um, an example of this I worked with a woman one time and she came in she was dealing with a lot of shame and when we dug into it it was that as a child when something bad would happen she would fall off her bike and her mom's response was what'd you do now right what'd you do right instead of oh no you you bruised your knee it was so she developed this she developed this belief of it's my fault if I'm hurting if something goes wrong there's something I did it's my fault and so I need to be the one to when something's wrong fix it right because there was something she did right she felt but she hit a rock 
you yeah. can't fit but that you can't the sidewalk but you can't like <laughs> exactly it the shame statements or the should statements keep you from being able to go stuff happens absolutely stuff S-H happens h happens yes the shoulds <laughs> yes it happens it and happens it's okay yes. and so i guess when we that's where you're, normal everyday stuff becomes not normal everyday stuff anymore right. is right. what you're kind of is what i'm mm-hmm. hearing absolutely yeah mm. so when we take when we take something externally that's happening and we take it and in an unhealthy way when it's really not about us when we take it in and we internalize it to be it's my fault there's something wrong with me or something i need to be able to control better in order to make things okay and that's where sometimes the shoulds regarding ourselves can come from i think there's also external shoulds you should Right. And that can also be very hurtful is when we have this sense of that people around us um, should be different than they are and that they're letting us down. Um, Then there's this sense of um, resentment, um, of feeling disappointed or hurt in ways that maybe we need to look at. Is that really is is that a healthy way to be seeing that situation? And that's where we go into the personalizing is that sometimes we can take what others are doing and make it about ourselves. Right. And, right. and oftentimes that's about them and mm. they're doing what they're doing because of their own story, because of their own conditioning, because of where they are in their lives that maybe isn't healthy. Mm. Um, and so when we can step back and, and let go of some of those things and let it be about them, um, even sometimes it's hurtful, but it's acknowledging that hurts versus, you know, this must be something I'm not doing well enough or something that you should be doing better. Um, so it's being able to kind of unpack that and look at it more clearly, going back to that these are all distorted ways of seeing. We have our biases of how we see the world and how we see others in the world and ourselves. So if you're this, go ahead. You have a question, Christine. Well, you go. I okay. do have a question. I have a, yeah. Well, Thought. so when you were thinking of the should for other people, mm-hmm. I of course go back to like your first year of marriage oh. or your second year of marriage where you, if you grew up in the church, you have like this idea. This is the way a wife is, a submissive wife looks like. This yeah. is how she responds. Or, or how husbands. She, our husbands. Or how this husbands is, are supposed yeah. to respond. And then they don't respond. And then you're like, we're not even wired that way. No. That's not going to even happen ever. <laughs> but I am. And so you flip the script and guess what? It's okay. It's okay for the woman to pay the bills. It's Mm -hmm. okay for, you know what I mean? Insert whatever word. But I remember that was a big deal for me. It'd be like, oh yeah, that's not going to happen in my marriage. Yeah. But I, and I put that on him a lot. The should, like you should, you should. And he was like, what? Where did you grow up? And I'm like, well, not in a good space, I guess, because (laughs) that's what I thought was supposed to happen. But I wish somebody would have said that in even premarital counseling. Yeah. Like, don't go by any biases. Like, go how God has equipped you and me and given your skill set and your personality is different than mine. Yeah. Thankfully. Yeah. So what you're, this is actually a great tool to manage the shoulds. It's stepping back and, and working on acceptance. Yeah. That I can accept who you are and your with what your I can't brokenness, them, I have right? But I can't them, change. I have to accept them. Okay, yeah. good to know. Acceptance, um, and as well, looking back and looking at our own role. What's mm-hmm. my part? What? So letting go of expecting you to change and having demands. Yeah. Then what can I be doing to change the situation so that it feels better or that we're yeah. functioning better together? Mm-hmm. 
Do you remember think people? Oh. Go ahead. I was just. I just remember he, Greg was like, "I do not put things together. I do not. I'm, he's not going to put anything together. It's just not." And I remember like, "We can do this together. We're putting together the baby bed." And he was like, "No, call Hector." And I was like, oh, "So mean." <laughs> so now Hector and I have a great relationship because he's kind of my other husband that when I need something done, Hector comes in, but I had to get to that point of not resenting him, not trying to change him. I even prayed that the Lord would help him be a handyman. He did not answer that prayer request, but I had to learn to accept it. I remember that was the first thing of like, men are supposed to put things together. Not my man. Yeah. Some other men do that. Yeah. And that's okay. It yeah. is okay. Yeah. Cares yeah. for his family in other ways. That's right. Do you find that um, people who get stuck in the should shame kind of that, do they end up being kind of controlling or the opposite? They end up being. Yes, we are very avoiders. controlling, Debbie. Like, yes, I've, we are. Are they, they end up being extreme, kind of extremes, right? I, I either avoid either everyone and I isolate oh. or I control everything because isolating is easier than being disappointed, right? All the time and hurt or yeah. whatever. Yeah. And then, or, or I'm so ashamed. I don't want to be around people or they over control everything, like all their stuff. So what. I mean, do you feel like are both those things true? Absolutely. Yeah. So I think we have our, we have something called our protect, our defense mechanisms. And so we, it could go one of two ways. Either I'm disappointed. So I'm just going to take control and I'm going to manage it in the way I think it should go. Or I'm going to passively just avoid and be resentful and shut down And there's a term called stonewall, right? Where it's just this stoicism in kind of a negative sense of, I'm just going to shut myself off. Right. And neither is healthy. And so it's being able to find, to be able to back up and look at, okay, what can I, what's an action that I can do and take responsibility for? And then what am I called to let go of? What do I work on accepting? So that's... It's kind of the work that we're... Because we still have to live with people, right? Absolutely. I mean, I, like God made us and wired us to be in community with people. But so, so. many people choose not to, right? right? Like so yeah. many choose people. They still live together under the same house. But the they choose room. to isolate within yeah. their home. Uh-huh. And that's, yeah, that's sad. Yeah, but you're right. It's sad, but they could make a choice to not, which is hard mm-hmm. and it's scary because then you're going to get hurt. But it's better if you do. It just takes some work. Mm -hmm. So then if someone is, uh, before we move on to our second one, which we're about to do, um, how does someone identify if they're living in the shoulds? Like if they're listening, they're like, oh, I'm not like that. But what are a few questions you would say, ask yourself? Um, I think if there's kind of a chronic sense of disappointment or feeling stuck, and then I think that would be a sign that there's some maybe unaddressed shoulds. There's some expectations that aren't getting met. Um, and to be able to back up from that and really look at what's, you know, how are you thinking about how, how are you, how are you perceiving your, where you are in your life? And um, maybe what is it that's keeping, you know, what's holding you back? What are the barriers to being able to move forward and with a sense of, that I'm where I'm supposed to be, that I'm living out of who I'm called to be. If someone feels like they're in the shoulds or whatever, what is like an exercise like they could do? Like when you're in those to write out your should statements to kind of see where is, where is the shoulds leaning towards? Like is journal, it towards other like people? Asher. Yeah. Hmm. Or post-it yeah. notes or, you know, on the back of a receipt when you're doing something to write, there's a should statement to learn. I just don't think people identify 
that they say it as much as they really do till someone says, you say that a lot or, you know, I don't know. Mm -hmm. I think you have to write them out yes or identify them and they usually all stream together like it's blaming somebody else or it's blaming yourself or it's because you spent too much money like there's always to me it seems like there's a theme whether it's eating spending money watching behavior treating people kids yeah I don't yeah. know how my kids look. Yeah, I yeah. think writing it down is a great exercise because that helps us really the first step to all of this the first step to change is awareness right so building awareness of how that's showing up and so writing it down noticing I mean anytime in my office when a patient comes in and there that word comes up it's an automatic pause hold on <laughs> right Hopefully. let's let's focus there right mm -hmm. and because that's telling us something that we need we need to be more clear is the, is this important are you willing to work on this or is this something is this an expectation you need to let go of and mm -hmm. if it is something that's important let's i what are some action steps then we need to translate that into a goal or into here's what i'm willing to do right mm -hmm. instead of this vague should right how do we step back from it and then if it is really something that in your value system is something that you are you truly feel called to do better then okay what does that look like what does better look like um so it starts with awareness so kind of identifying being aware as christy said kind of make, being intentional about making note of things mm -hmm. recognizing things you do all that you realize it's an issue so you're wanting to get better then you're saying, what? Like, how do you change how you talk to yourself? Through practice. Okay. So yeah. you do have to practice. So it's, like it's, yeah. And it's so, not going to change overnight, in other words. No, it's yeah. not. You know, I think we are oftentimes hardwired with the way that we see with our perspective and the way we think and see the world. And so we're what we're this is all and we can go into all of this, like our neurology and the right. way like because it does wire our brain differently. Absolutely. When we live in it. But all the what time. the good news is there's neuroplasticity and there's mm -hmm. we have opportunity to change the way that we're thinking, but it absolutely takes practice over time. Didn't we talk about this too? <clears throat> Excuse me, being grateful and thankful that re that reprograms your brain too. Yeah. Yes. The, the attitude you, of gratitude. Yes. Yeah. The more that brain. you acknowledge the goodness and, and where God is and the thankfulness that, that that actually rewires your brain out of, it unwires the hard wire to the negative and it makes it mm -hmm. good to where yeah. you're looking and you have a better lens. Yeah. But that can take practice and time too, right? It all that takes practice happen. and yeah. time, Debbie. That doesn't happen it's overnight. Really, <laughs> yeah. It's really hard because the That's, reality is our brains are wired to be on the lookout for what's not okay. Right. We're, to protect us. Right. Yeah. Our nervous yeah. system is uh, scanning. Where am I not safe? Where do what, where is a problem? What's, you know, it's so the things that are wrong, the, the danger, the, the things that aren't okay with us, those tend to be what we notice, what we see. And the things that are going well, oftentimes we just go right past that. We don't even notice because it's not something that calls for us to be, you know, responding to or protecting ourselves from. Mm -hmm. So there, yeah. So being able to be very intentional about noticing the good because our brain just doesn't naturally go there. And what's fascinating so. to me then is that that part of our brain wired like that is a result of the fall. Because before mm -hmm. the fall, did we have to look out for danger? Probably mm -hmm. not, right? 
Yeah. So even like the fall and the issues from it is hardwired into the very being of who we are. It has absolutely mm-hmm. changed everything. And so. Which it makes part you of, go and heaven's going to be so we can't even yeah. fathom it because we yeah. have no idea. Because we can't the, function. Yeah. We, we can't uh-uh. function without that even piece of how our brain has been re- rewired because of that. Mm-hmm. So I just find that interesting because God gives us hope from that. And there is a way, like you're saying, to rewire our brains because God even provided that piece, right? So um, our second part, because mm. the should statements kind of lead to almost <laughs> the other one we're doing, which is mm. the personalization and the blame is the second um, distorted negative way of thinking that we're going to talk about today. So maybe we just move right on to that and we can read that definition because it does kind of partner well with the should statements, it seems like. So personalization and blame um, is the um, is another distorted way of thinking. And that definition is you hold yourself responsible for events or things you don't have 100% control over. This distortion involves the blame game. When you blame something on someone else, you don't have to look at your part in the situation. An example um, that it gives is like your child gets into trouble at school and instead of being curious about what happened and why you blame yourself for being a terrible parent or you blame the teacher or you blame other people for your child's behavior. Um, It's hard to enter into those tough conversations when you're blaming everyone else because you can't hone in on the real issue, right? There's no growth there. So explain personalization and blame like where you feel like you see that the most kind of like we talked about with shame. Yeah, so personalization comes up when we're taking something happening outside of ourselves and we're making it about us, right? So this person, I went to the coffee shop and I ordered coffee and she was short with me. Oh, she must not like me. Maybe I wasn't nice enough. Maybe she doesn't like the drink I ordered, right? So it's we're taking we're taking something out of context because it gives us a sense of once it going back to control. And so sometimes we we assign control where it doesn't re- where it doesn't exist, right? Can you give us more examples of that? Um, so a great one because I used to is driving. You know, someone cuts us off in traffic, mm. and oftentimes I I can speak for myself. My knee jerk reaction is, oh, they didn't they didn't even care that I'm right here in this lane. They yeah. just cut me off right they they, they're a horrible driver there is yeah i would be just fine and yelling so we oftentimes what you know we take it personally that this person did something to us when the reality is when we can slow down and get out of that reaction is that person did that because of whatever space they're in Uh you know because of how they drive um whatever is going on in their day it's totally about them but it feels in the moment our our gut react our instinct is they did that to me mm-hmm. and so that so that's a very just kind of common one but i think that that can in a more personal way in our lives we can apply, we can assign blame to people um when we feel really hurt mm-hmm. so i think it's easier when we're hurt to you know, in a way where we're taking whatever someone else is doing personally, and it's, they did something wrong, instead of being able to slow down and say, you know what, what is it like, why is that hurtful? What do I need? 
Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe there is something that needs to change in that relationship or in the way the dynamics. Um, but if we're just focused on um, that person's behavior in that moment, then and getting upset and making the blame, you did this, right, then it's not a productive conversation. Um, then we're both of us have our defense mechanisms up, you know, it's your fault when we're in the blame mm-hmm. versus um, let's, you know, I feel this way when you do this. And so we're trying to get out of the, um, the emotion, the reaction, because typically that's where taking things personally and blaming is coming from is from that I would think that people who tend to use a lot of should statements would have a lot of personalization just wrapped up then from what you're saying yeah they go hand in hand they do very much I mean that's a double whammy Mm -hmm. (laughs) that would be because the blame one is probably more the avoider right it's Mm -hmm. everybody else's fault if I just avoid I isolate whatever personalization is that's very much the shame Mm -hmm. I'm you know, I can't do anything right. Um, yeah. I, you take it all on. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's interesting. So what comes first, the chicken or the egg? I wonder. Right. <laughs> yeah. I, I was thinking of sports parents. Oh. Explain I mean, I've that. been on, well, I've been on the end where they get mad at me because I didn't play their daughter. So I don't like them or they did this. And I'm like, it has nothing to do with you. Yeah. Like it legit has to do with the game. Like your kid doesn't have. They're on a team. Set it's right. They're on a playing team. At that point in the game. But so many parents, and I do it too. I'm guilty of it all the time. And then I have to reel myself in off the crazy land and be like, stop it. But if they don't play your kid or they sub them out or they move them around and you instantly are like, they don't, they don't like them. Mm-hmm. What do they do? And then you do ask your kid, what'd you do? Were you snot? Did you do this? That's how we play it out in our house often. And then you just have to be like, no, the coach knows what he's doing. Stop it. Like yeah. almost don't even enter into the conversation. Just let it be what it is. But when parents struggle mm-hmm. with their kid in sports. Yeah, I think that's parenting just in general. Yeah. We tend to really take personally what our kids are doing. And there's, there is a healthy version of that, right? We are, we are called as parents to guide our children. Mm-hmm. You know, it is our responsibility to, you know, to mentor, to teach them to mm-hmm. mentor that, that they, you know, that they have an understanding of who they're called to be. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that, yeah, sometimes we take too much of who our kids are and we make it about ourselves instead of allowing them of to be as themselves. Whether um, it's I think sports or... Sports are a great example grades. of that. Yeah, grades. grades. Probably what kind of college are you going to get into? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Talk of, about sports, though. I want to hear So that. if we go into sports... <laughs> I knew yeah, that. I totally understand. I mean, my son plays hockey mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. it's very easy to, you know, feel a sense of that, you know, that what he's doing is a result of how well, you know, we raised him or yes. what, op- you know, like yeah, it's a about reflection us, yeah, of a your reflection family. Of and, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think it's when we take what our kids are doing and we over identify with it. Um, that that what they're doing is reflective of how well we're parenting. And so we really, in a way, in a sense, are kind of living out of our kids' achievements rather than stepping back and looking at, you know, this is this is their path. And, mm-hmm. you know, we can we can love them through that. We can support them through that. But when we over identify with what they're doing, 
that then reflects on us as how well we're doing as parents, um, that can be a really, um, that can be a difficult path to navigate with, you know, how much we take on versus what we let go of. And we forget there's so much more going on in those situations than yeah. just our one kid. That's yeah, cause, on and when you personalize, sport. you're not recognizing any of that, right? Because it is yeah. all about you. Yes. Yeah. And they forget mm-hmm. whether you play on a team of five on the court, six on the field, 11, whatever it is, 24. I mean, if it's an individual sport, I'll give you that. Like if you're tennis, you're, rest, you're golf, right? You're going to, that's going to be a struggle because you're solo. Your kid is solo, and that is a single-person game. But when it's a team sport, dude, parents, y'all have no idea. And I'm saying that to myself. Like, I'm holding a mirror up. Yeah. But I think we forget that it's not a reflect. I mean, like you said, we think it's a reflection of us. In reality, the coach could care less what your family looks like. They just want to get wins, or they want to develop kids, or some would say they don't want to get wins, and they want to lose. So then there's a question there. So how do you recognize about that about yourself? Like when you're, you're crazy, <laughs> you're sports crazy. We don't use that word at this table. Oh, no. We do in our house. We have sports crazy moments. I'm teasing. It's, yeah. it's fleeting. It's not all the time. But yeah, how would you recognize that about yourself? Since it's hard for us to always identify things. The first ourselves. step is acceptance, Debbie. Okay. Remember? Let's ask the counselor. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, really the first step again is awareness. And awareness, often, that's the word. Oftentimes it's coming from with each of these with all of these thought distortions, typically how it shows up for us initially is discomfort. It's feeling anxious, mm. feeling stressed, feeling uncomfortable, like a sense of um, dread of, you know, get even when you're going to the game and you're mm. watching your kid getting mm. this sense of, you know, anxiety mm-hmm. about am I how is oh my gosh my kids not performing mm-hmm. in the way that I expect or hoped for them to or you know they're not succeeding in the way that you know feels good mm-hmm. right so it shows typically shows up as discomfort a lot of like our nervous system is a sign you know it's kind of this built-in mechanism that's showing us it's kind of speaking to us and so we need to slow down look at like how it like what's showing up for me what how am I feeling why why am I feeling uncomfortable mm-hmm. and sometimes that's absolutely showing that there's something in us that we need to be able to look at a little bit differently and slow down and and maybe um maybe have some kind of insight into how are we called to to move through that what do we let go of how do we show up differently mm-hmm. in our lives so this goes to like developing help for ourselves and for our kids developing resiliency. It's that, yeah, we go through hard things. We, we get disappointed. We lose the game. We're not right. even, we're on the bench, you mm-hmm. know, and what does that mean? Yep. And instead of, you know, getting into this place where, you know, we're, taking it personally in a way that we that doesn't serve us well or we're assigning blame it's being able to look at that in in a healthy way and what's my part of that what what do I what control do I have and what do I not have Mm -hmm. and um and then how do we move on from that what about parents yelling at like refs and stuff angry on the sidelines at coaches like what like we had a coach in one of our basketball games our coach on Joel's team that was thrown out of the gym because he threw a punch at a post because he was so mad and he was yelling Mm -hmm. at the refs so is that personalization 
Or is that something like, that's is anger. that? That's an anger issue. That's, that's a reaction. reaction. That's a reaction. You what? It's a reaction. Yeah, it's a reaction. That's good. That's good. But it's about them, right? Like yeah. they think they can control, they yeah. can do something that will change it. Uh-huh. So and it's the an interest- unhealthy reaction. Yes. Yeah. The yeah. The funny thing. This happened even this past mm-hmm. weekend at a hockey tournament I was attending. But yeah, one of the dads loves to yell at the ref, and so something happened, and the dad yelled, "Ref, that's on you. You didn't see this, right?" And I turned to him and said, "Hey, Bob, how many times when you yell at the ref does the ref change his mind? Yes. Right? Yes. Mm-hmm. And never. it was fun, right? It was, and he said, "Well, you know, never, mm-hmm. right?" But that's the thing is, yeah, the dad has this sense of, I see what's right and I'm going to tell you so that you, right. But it's, it's not, it's not effective. That's the stuff that always, and more than anything else, the parent interaction, that's the stuff that always bugged me on the sidelines that I had a hard time with, like that I would have to physically take a deep breath and not be like, want to yell at them myself, yeah. which would not yeah. help the situation well, the at all. the next time you don't sit next to that person too. Yeah, yeah if You totally. find those people and you you're learn like, and you we're going to sit way yeah. over here too. Yeah, and here's the thing, you know, I think we all are imperfect. We all have our, you know, what we do. I think it's that we can observe that in others without mm. judging them, without taking it on mm. in a way that we feel a sense of that we are, that we have, like, we need to do something about it. We oftentimes, we don't have control over that. It's going to be happening. We can see it for what it is. I think the beauty in that is we're built for community. We're, mm. we are meant to be, we're social creatures. We're built to be to have relationship, and we can we can see that in others, and we can learn something about ourselves. And you know, because who am I to judge someone else for their reaction when I know I have my own? Mm-hmm. And the reality is, I can see that, and maybe the discomfort of that is telling me, you know what, like I there's something I can learn from that, and yeah. and I'm not going to take it personally, but you know what, I can see that, and I can feel the discomfort, and it's decide, you know what, I don't want to show up that way, mm-hmm. um, and that's that's learning. So that's, what's the difference between personalization and empathy? Because you're talking about empathy a little bit, aren't mm-hmm, you? A little bit. Mm-hmm. So how do you? What's the difference? Um, I think empathy is that we can we can see where someone else is coming to, from, and we can relate personalizing is we see where someone else is Mm -hmm. and we take it on and we make it about ourselves. So you really, those two can't live together. Well, no empathy and personalization. Like you're going to have a hard time with empathy. If you make everything about you. Yeah. Almost opposite. Yeah. They are a little bit opposite. Yeah. From what y'all are saying. So then in marriage, can you tell me how you see personalization happen in marriage? Can you give us examples for that? We talked about the shame and the should earlier. Yeah. In marriage. Yeah. I think in marriage, it's where one partner is taking what the other is, what the other partner is doing and making it about them. So for example, like what's a good example of that? Um, I guess if, if my husband is, this is an example, by right? The way. This is just an exam- example. I'm, just, I'm making this yes. up. Yes. <laughs> Make sure we put that caveat. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, everybody needs to know that. <laughs> if he's leaving his socks on the floor instead of putting them in the hamper, and I was to see that and say, man, he doesn't care. He doesn't care, he about, care about me, me that I have to and pick how him up hard and I'm working mm. to keep this house look, you know, like to, to do the laundry and to keep this house running. And he just doesn't even care. Right. Yeah. Then that's me taking his behavior and making it something 
about me, about how he feels about me, um, rather than maybe he just left his socks on the floor. Yeah. Right? Maybe it's just as simple as that. Every single day for 20 years of marriage, he just does that? Is that what you're saying? Uh Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. Just making sure. And still hypothetical. And maybe we need to... (laughs) Maybe we need to just accept We're just accept- that the he socks are on the know- floor. He d- he's not a basketball player. He doesn't know how to get it in the hoop. Yeah. Okay. On it. Thank you, Kara. It's good. <laughs> so good. Okay. And I have one more then. One more that I want to ask about. Kids and grades. Because I do want to go there. Because mm-hmm. I think it's a big deal with success, with people wanting to get into colleges, all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. How do you identify when your personalization is going in that direction? Mm. Yeah, so I think that there, you know, let me slow down and think about this one for a second. So oftentimes we look at what others are doing and the outcomes they're getting. When we look at our kids, we're seeing their grades are this outcome of the work that they're putting in, right? And sometimes we over-identify with that outcome and we see it as representative of what we're doing versus being able to see, okay, this is where they are. And so there's a different, there's, there's a, there's a different framework from those in those two areas, right? So when I can have a boundary of the grades they're getting is that's where they are. That's the outcome they're getting versus there's, there's something I'm not doing as a parent that is why they're getting these grades. And so it's a, it's a subtle way of being able to have a boundary in holding our kids responsible for the outcomes. So ownership getting. almost in a way. I'm so not identifying with this at all. Yeah. Can you break this down a little bit more? Yeah. So even, like, what you, I mean, like if someone says, I mean, but maybe it's because I'm thinking like elementary, middle and high school, right? Cause yeah. there's a level of progression that takes place. Mm-hmm. Gentry, third grader. She does really poor on her test. I, as a parent, should take a little bit of blame for that because Absolutely. who's going to be as a third grader? Mom, I need to study for my spelling test every single day. Like you kind of have to teach them. It depends, right? It depends on the age. But of when she gets a check mark, about. I don't go killing it as a mom. Like I don't do that yeah. as a third grade mom. Yeah. So this is a bigger, so this is kind of a bigger, when we look at development. So our kids, as they develop, have different capacity, right? And of what they're capable of. And so when kids are small, absolutely. It's our job as parents to help them learn how to learn, right? And, Mm -hmm. and to, you know, work with their teacher and be showing up at the school to make sure that they're in, they're best suited to the environment that they can, that they can, that they can do well, right? And, as they move through the grades, as they develop, then they, you know, our kids really in order to be like long-term successful need to be able to take that responsibility on. And you have to know each of your kids individually, I think to, and so, and I think of my three too, because they were different. And if you personalize everything, you're not going to be able to do that. If you personalize over much, you're going to miss what your kids are telling you. Or yeah. what someone in life is telling you. Because all behavior is communication, right, at some point. Mm-hmm. So if someone is, if they have, if they're struggling with trying to figure out if they want a better outcome for their kids. And they're looking at them going, you're not studying. You're lazy. Whatever. But what age group are you talking about? Any age group. Like if you're elementary, middle, high school, you're looking at your kid and you're not getting the outcome you want. As a parent. You're as not a parent, getting the outcome that you want you as a want. parent from your kid. Is that automatically personalization? 
Ooh, if you're saying big blanket question, that's what I'm asking though. Like if, if you're saying this is not the outcome I want, if it's an I statement when it's their grades, is that like a, is that a good indicator or am I wrong? Man, that is a hard one. Yeah. Yikes. <laughs> um, so here's break it down. Yeah. So let's actually break it down. Because I think oftentimes we over-identify with outcomes when really we need to back up and look at who who are we called to be and what's the process, right? So I think, in, and I think of this, actually, there's a great book about this called um, Atomic Habits by James Clear. And he has this diagram that's super helpful of a bullseye. And in the middle of the bullseye is who I believe myself to be. I am capable. I am smart. I am a hard worker. And so that's the middle of our, that's the middle of the bullseye. Outside of that is because that's who I am, what do I do? I work hard. I study. I show up. I put in the effort. And then because of that process of what we do, what are the outcomes we get? And I think our culture focuses on the outcomes. We look at the grades. We look at the um, career, our status. We look at the label. We look at the car and the house mm-hmm. and the picket fence, right? We, we're looking at the outcomes instead of let's back up. What are we doing? And is that really in line with who we're called to be? And I think as parent, as for ourselves, we need to be able to back up, um, but also with our kids, we, we over-identify with the outcomes that we see them getting instead of looking at, no, who are, who are they called to be? And are they doing, are they doing the things in their lives that, that really match up to that? So then are they working hard? Right. Because we're called to, be, to work hard, be productive. So you're saying the issue is not the outcome. The issue is, are you working hard? Mm-hmm. Then is, what you're, is that what you're saying? Yes. Yeah. Okay. That makes total sense. So then you... you take then kind of the habits maybe that may help the grades. But then if they're doing all those things and the outcomes still aren't what you want, you have to in some way separate from that and right. go, they may not get into Harvard. Exactly. <laughs> they may not get into UT or who, you know, wherever. I mean, but that's hard. Do you feel some parent, like, do you feel like you're giving up on your kid if you're not pushing them harder? Yeah, I think there's, yeah, it's finding the balance of how, how much do we, do we push or do we just show up for them? What does, you know, and I think it's, how do we best support our kids? How do we, as parents, how do we show up for them in a way that we help them thrive? Because that's what we're called to do as parents. And, you know, so pushing, I think doesn't serve them well. Because then it becomes about us. Mm-hmm. So it's backing up from mm-hmm. that. And at the end of the day, it's really empowering our kids to move through their lives in the way they're called to be. You know, there's a path for them. There's, they were created to be their own unique individual mm-hmm. and allowing them to figure that out. And oftentimes, yeah, that does come from what are they, what are they passionate about? What are they good at? Because that's oftentimes the path that they're called to go down. And if we're pushing them with something that maybe isn't, that's not them, it's not how they, where they're showing up in there, then maybe that's, you know, we need to pay attention to that. Yeah. Cause God calls our kids to be a re- his image bearer, reflection of him, not a reflection of us. Right. Right. And that's hard to remember. That's really hard mm-hmm. to remember. And I'm thinking too, like 
grades don't define your kids. Sports doesn't define. Band doesn't. Like those are all like things on the outside. And you hear us say that like he's a band kid or he's a this kid. You hear us say things like that like they do all the time, I guess, huh? Oh, yeah, absolutely. But then if we are made in his image and we are created, who are we called to be, which is what you've said a couple of times, those things help us figure out what we're called to be mm-hmm. and give us character so that when we are understand what we're called to be, we have the character. So those hardships in failing or not getting an A or, you know, or, or not making a, a team, or yeah, not making a team, bench, all or... those things help us be better have a better foundation in God, in Christ, to understand what we're called to be mm-hmm. and refine us, which is painful for parents to watch your kids go through it. And so that's what I'm thinking. As y'all are talking, like, yeah, grades are great. It helps them get into whatever and helps them maybe do a job. But is that what they're called to be? Because maybe they're called to be an amazing dad or father. And they can also provide by, you know, having grades that got them the great job. But what about the kid that doesn't make great grades? Mm-hmm. Like our neighbor across the street, he was so great. I was talking to him about colleges and he was like, Hey, I have six employees that work for me right now. None of them went to college and they're all making six figures. Yeah. And I was like, I mean, my mind was a little blown. Like, thank you. Why don't we hear that more often? Like, and then somebody else said at dinner the other night, like my, what her husband, her husband doesn't have a college degree, but he's working in the corporate world. And every once in a while he'll get a promotion and they just kind of wait like, Oh, do they not realize he doesn't have a college degree? But he's made it so far. And that's who, I mean, we get caught up in things and it's so hard. Especially here, I feel like, because we hang our hat on everybody's going to go do this or everybody's going to go do that. Yeah. And that's not who God called him to be. No. Just to live and grow. You wanted to go to Romans 12. I did. So um, this has been such a great conversation. Um, I wanted to, I feel like Romans 12 kind of talks about as a believer. Um changing, you know, our, how God can work within us to alter our mind. But what's interesting is as we were talking about shame earlier, I'm like, some people would read this passage and feel shame if they're not careful. (laughs) Right. Mm -hmm. And so how do we, instead of thinking about it as shame, we think about it as hope. And so it's Romans 12. Um, one it's I'll start in one. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. But do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern that it is that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body, we have many members, as the members do not have all the same functions, so we, though many, are in one body in Christ, and individual um, members, one of the other. But then if you hop down, and that was through five, but if you hop down to nine, he goes on to go to say, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. And so that to me is a running list of ways to combat distorted thinking, right? Absolutely. 
But then when... You keep going to bless those who yes, persecute you. Bless those who persecute you. Bless, do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. That's empathy. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. I mean, the whole passage is just talking about how you can literally rewire your brain, the actions you need to do to rewire how you think. But how do we look at this and go, I don't do... Like if someone's reading this saying, I can't do any of that. Oh, yeah. That's a very... Like what's the first step? I mean, because that's shame. Like what God is, you're a believer. Yeah. God's saying you can do this. Like you, you will, you can do this. So then as we close, what's the first step? If you're looking at that and they're, and you're feeling shame as you read through God's word, because you're like, I cannot measure up. What's the first thing you do? Um, I, you know, I think the first thing to do is, is to acknowledge it and to be honest about that that's a struggle and then to you know it's if if there's a feeling of being stuck in that place um you know I think we're called not to not to stay there alone I think that's that's why we have a community um you know as a therapist I would say if it's really if it's something that you recognize is deeply rooted then there's there's people, there's professionals out there to help. Um, but, you know, I think it's that you're not in that place alone. And I think that's where we can get stuck is where we feel alone and isolated in that place. Mm. So it's being able to get outside of ourselves to share that in a way that we can find healing. That's good. Thank you so much. That's good. I've loved this conversation. Mm-hmm. We've enjoyed good. it. We're going to have... Um, we're ho- hoping to put five of these out so each one will cover two distorted thinking. We're going to have Kara back and a couple of other counselors too. She doesn't know that yet. We just told her. She just got real excited. <laughs> We're inviting you back. You got to come right. back. All right. Awesome. Yeah, you two more. Yeah. Um, Hopefully you will say yes. <laughs> yes. We hope so. Because um, I've just truly enjoyed talking to you and I think our listeners will find this mm-hmm. helpful. Um, and as Christine and I say often, we are flawed, flawed, flawed people. Just hosting a podcast, hosting a podcast that will hopefully benefit other flawed people. (laughs) Because like you said, we are in this together. So as community, anything else, Christy? No. That it? Wrap up? Mm -hmm. We're done. All right, everybody. That's it from Noisy Narratives um, today. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, we will talk to you later. This is Noisy Narratives out. Bye. Life can be amazing.